Well, thank you to all your diehards that are still here. Some of us have been here since early this week. So some of us are never leaving. Anyway, um, so the topic today is um, ADF's gimmick or godsend. ADF stands for Abuse Deterrent Formulations. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Jeff Fudin, F-U-D-I-N, not to be confused with Jeff Gooden, who lives uh, about 150 miles from me. Sometimes I get his checks in the mail, which is pretty cool. Um, I, I don't mind that if they send him my tax stuff. It's good. So, um, all right, so uh, this is kind of a fun topic, and I'm doing this uh, with Dr. Michael Shaman, who is to my right, your left. Um, and um, what we're going to do is we're going to split this up into uh, two parts. And the first part here is going to be basically the science of ADFs, uh, what we know, what we have, uh, why we're doing what we're doing with these ADFs. Uh, these are my disclosures. Um, and uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few up there. Many of those people are competitors, so uh, you know, it's kind of hard to bias one over the other if, if, if two companies are making the same type of drug. But um, anyway, so those are my disclosures uh, on there for you. Um, and then here, um, Dr. Chapman uh, has his disclosure with uh, Kaleo, and if he wants, he can speak more about that. Um, and so this is kind of unique because, as, as I, you probably know, when, when you do a continuing education program, whether it's pharmacy, nursing, nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, PTs, doesn't matter, can't use brand names. <clears throat> but because of the nature of this particular topic, that these, these drugs are branded by ADF formulation, I, I see no way of getting around it. So I'm disclosing that right up front. I, I, I don't mean to bias this in any way, shape, or form, but it's kind of hard to talk about extended release morphine ADF if there's five of them, right? So. Um, so that's why we're going to be using some, some, some brands. It looks like these slides will not change, Michael. So we'll have to go back to that. Okay. Um, so um, my portion of the objectives uh, is to define the term uh, AADF, differentiate among the various abuse deterrent formulation technologies, uh, talking both about physical and pharmacological uh, barriers, uh, and then uh, recognize that there are uh, new guidelines put out by the FDA as of 2015. So here's a pretest question. Examples of opioids that have been formulated to deter abuse include all the following except. Okay, so I hope you know the answer to that question. Um, let's just get a show of hands. How many people say one, two, three, four? Okay, everybody can just leave. We're, we're done. Uh, that, that is the correct answer. But I'll tell you something, you'd be surprised. I've been all over the country giving lectures on REMS, and I've asked this exact same question, and less than 50% of people get, usually get that right. It's pretty incredible. Okay, so here are the, two on, the, the 2015 FDA industry guidelines. So the FDA really is trying to encourage uh, the pharma industry to develop abuse deterrent formulations. Um, unfortunately, I think it's going to be difficult uh, really to make this happen unless the FDA somehow gets involved with the... Uh, uh, maybe Congress or state legislatures um, to try and mandate uh, more use of ADFs because, you know, these, the, the, you know for all the bad things that, that we hear about pharma, the truth is they're putting out a whole lot of money to, to bring ADFs to market, um, really because it's probably the responsible thing to do. Um, but um, there's not a lot of, there can't be a lot of uptake if insurance companies are not paying for it. Now, uh, it's, it's definitely getting better, um, but it's a bit of an issue, and sometimes it's a little bit of a headache for us because we're the ones that have to write the justification for payment uh, for an ADF. Um, so there are all sorts of uh, characteristics. There are physical, uh, chemical barriers uh, is, is one way of doing this. And to your right, uh, there are examples of various uh, drugs by, by brand and name uh, that, that, uh, that have physical or chemical barriers. So it's not easy to dissolve these things in solution so they can be inject, injected uh, uh, IV. Um, so uh, the drug companies are really have to um, test these things in all kinds of solvents, not just dissolving them in water, but dissolving them in, in toluene and in, in, in benzene and in gasoline, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And savvy street chemists, if they're able to dissolve these things in various volatile um, solutions, then there are ways because of volatile to get 
to get these other agents out and to, and to um, have, have what's left like in powdered form. So that's the reason why the FDA are such sticklers about um, trying to come up with drugs that are not easily dissolvable in any of these solutions. Um, then there's agonist-antagonist combinations, and there's a bunch of them listed there. Suboxone, a Subsolv, uh, Benavil, and, and a whole bunch of others, and Beta, for example. Um, now, uh, this is interesting because people, like years ago when I was doing some advisory board work for some of these drug companies, some of them would say, well, you know, we're, we're like the first one to have, to have a, uh, a combined agonist-antagonist. <laughs> no, you're not. I, I, was, I was an intern in the 1970s, and I remember people used to shoot up pentazosine um, with, with um, they call it T's and blues, uh, uh, pyrobenzamine antihistamine or some other antihistamines. They'd shoot them up, and they'd, and they'd get a euphoric uh, high similar to heroin. And so I, I remember Sterling Winthrop was right across the river. They were the ones that made it at the time. Um, and... and uh, uh, the FDA basically came in and said, you either do something about this or we're yanking it off the market. So what they did is they put naloxone in it. So now the, the tablets are available. The only tablets available generically and by brand are Talon NX. And the reason for that is that if you take, if you take Talon NX or the generic formulation of uh, pentazosine plus naloxone, the naloxone doesn't get absorbed orally, uh, but the pentazosine does. And not that anybody even uses this drug anymore. Um, but if you inject it, Right, then the naloxone blocks the receptor. And what ended up happening after they changed that formulation, I can remember working in a pharmacy, uh, getting close to the emergency room, all these people were going through withdrawal because it's the first time anything like this was on the market and they had no freaking idea. And so they're getting pentazosine on the street and they're injecting it and they're going through massive withdrawal. And that, that's one of the pitfalls. So I listed some of these things here. If you're, we're going to use these, these combined products of, of um, antagonists, there's a potential for leaching of the antagonist out of the product uh, we've seen that, and there's been some, some, some recalls of some of the products in the past, which presumably are, are okay now. Um, if they're manipulated for, for abuse, again, as I just pointed out, uh, you can have uh, withdrawal symptoms. Um, the, it is, so it is effective to block intravenous use, uh, intranasal use, intravaginal use. Any, any um, um, rule of administration by which naloxone can be absorbed and bypassed the gastric mucosa, the, it is useful. Okay, um, but it is not useful if you take it orally because you can still crush it and then naloxone is not going to get absorbed. Now, an, an exception of that is Embedda, Brandon Embedda, because that doesn't use naloxone, it uses naltrexone. And naltrexone is absorbed orally, but naloxone is not. Okay, and there's actually another drug that I, I don't believe is being marketed in, in this country actively. I don't even know if it's available now, but it wasn't actively marketed for a long time by Purdue, and that's Targenique. And Targenique was extended release oxycodone, not, not the formulation of oxycontin, uh, which, is, has, which is abuse deterrent, but it was extended release oxycodone, and it had um, naloxone in it. And it was not abuse deterrent in terms of, um, it, 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 it had the uh, indication, but you could still take a whole bunch of it orally and crush it, and you'll get it all absorbed at once. So that, that was a problem. Um, and in Europe, actually, that drug actually has a co-indication of, of uh, chronic pain and also a pomora because it's got the naloxone right in the tablet. Yeah, right? So, um, but again, I'm not even sure if it's available here now. Um, differentiating between the ADFs by, by technology. So they're the first one, um, I should really change these colors, it's hard to see, but aversion technologies. So Oxato uh, has sodium lauryl sulfate in it, which causes nasal burning if you try and snort it. Um, then there's delivery system uh, innovations that have like a, a depot in, uh, injection. So that's the extended release buprenorphine injection, but that's for opioid use disorder. Uh, new molecular entities are prodrugs. Uh, Apodaz is uh, Ben's hydrocodone, so that's a prodrug. So what ends up happening is if you take one, one of those, at, at like a 5-325 tablet, so it's hydrocodone like an acetaminophen, if you take one of them, it gets absorbed like anything else does. If you take two of them, it gets absorbed like anything else does. But if you take three of them, the absorption starts to go down. It's pretty cool. Okay, so that's an unusual one. Um, that did not get the approval as a, uh, an official ADF drug, but it's got a ADF properties. Um, then there's NKR-181. Uh, that's pegylated oxycodone. So, one of the re so, so this is a really unique approach. So what we want to do is we, wanna, we, we don't want a big rush of drug 
getting into this CNS. That's one of the problems that we have, right? So there'd be no point in, 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 um, in abusing one of these drugs if you couldn't get a really high serum level all at once. That's what addicts want to do. And so what this drug does, instead of looking at the absorption side of the equation, they're looking at the uh, diffusion side of the equation into this CNS. So the idea is that if you have a rapid uh, in, um, infusion of an uh, opioid into the CNS, and you get rapid release of dopamine. But if it sort of trickles in, you don't get that euphoria. So what this drug does because of the pegylation uh, is the oxycodone cannot get in through the blood-brain barrier very quickly. So instead of absorption on the GI side, it's absorption into the CNS. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then there's combinations that utilize um, some of these molecular entities and, and various technologies uh, combined. Uh, so the FDA uh, has various categories uh, that, they, that they require for these new drugs coming to market. Um, uh, category one is physical manipulation. So in other words, you can't easily chemically extract this, and there's actually a new word now. I don't know if it's in the Webster Dictionary, but they call it syringability. I don't know who, who would know, but anyway. So category two, pharmacokinetic studies have to be done. So uh, some of the drugs that are coming to market now their, their, compar their comparator are drugs that have been on the market. So they might, want, they might compare it to MS Contin, and then they get, a, they get a free pass in terms of efficacy. Like, why spend a billion dollars showing that extended release morphine is going to work if the graphs are superimposable in terms of absorption? And the FDA, thank God they recognize that because it's kind of, it would be a waste of money. So, so um, and I'm just using MS Contin, for example. It could be something else, but I'm just saying that when these new drugs come to market, like extended release morphine, they may compare it to something like MS Contin, show that the time to peak is the same, the excretion is the same, the end of the curve is the same. FDA says, good for you, now show us that it's abuse deterrent. Uh, so they have to show category one, they have to show category three uh, with, with uh, various studies, which I'm going to get to. And then category four has not been shown by any company yet, even though they have uh, ADF approval. And category four is post-marketing studies to show that there's a value to this. Now, we can't show that there's a value to this you know, if, with, with an N of 1. Now, that, it's, it's obviously more than N of 1. But what I'm saying is that we have millions of people that are, that are taking prescribed opioids the way they should be taking them, and we, don't have, we only have a fraction of that of people that are on ADFs, right? So no company yet um, has, has probably had high enough numbers to do post-marketing surveillance uh, to show that this is, that this is valuable. Uh, so common routes of administration of abuse would include crushing or swallowing. I, I do want to point out that, that the, the term is abuse deterrent. It is not, it is not abuse proof. All right? So if somebody like, really wanted to kill themselves, um, they could take 10 extended release morphines and die in five hours instead of 30 minutes. You can still die. Right? So um, these things still do get absorbed. Uh, crushing and snoring is very uh, popular. I'm going to talk more about that. Crushing and smoking, uh, crushing and or extracting for injection, uh, oral intact, which I just described, and then co-ingestion, of course, with alcohol, uh, benzos, and other sedatives. And I'm going to put a little plug-in for the lecture I'm giving tomorrow on Ill illicit fentanyl because I'm going to dispel some of the myths about opiate overdoses. Um, and I'm going to say this now, and I'll say it again. Although I do not mean to minimize the problems with opioids in this country, Within the last year, and probably a little more than a year, we do not have a prescription opioid epidemic. We have an illicit fentanyl epidemic. Okay? Um, and unless something is done about those drugs that are coming into the country, and illicit use of these other drugs, nothing is going to change. And I'm really not sure that anything will change. Because if you can't get your drugs from here, you're going to get them from over here. And I'll give you a, a, a good example of that. So, so when, well, I'll, I'll wait because I think I, have, I have, actually have a slide on it. So this is the history of the development of ADS. On the left side, you see the original OxyContin, which is crushed. The whole idea is to get a nice small pile of powder that you can either dissolve or snort. All right? um, on the right side was their new formulation, uh, which they, they came out with, I think, in 2012. Um, was that? 2010? Okay, 2010. Um, and, and you can see it's not, you know, you wouldn't have a good time snoring that, right? So, so that's what happened with OxyContin. But what, what ends up happening now um, is that um, OxyContin uh, use uh, decreased, 
right? Um, they voluntarily removed the 160 milligram tablet from the market because that was a lot of drug in a small pile of powder. Um, and um, and uh, then, oh, so it was 2013, Michael. I think maybe it was 2012 the NDA went in, but anyway, 2013. So what did abusers do next? Well, what they decided, they, they're, they're pretty smart, kind of, um, until they take too many drugs and their, their brain gets whipped. But um, basically, the idea is you want as much drug, as many milligrams, as much potency as possible in a small little pile of powder. Because the smaller it is, the more it gets absorbed. So what they said when the 160 milligrams came off at the market, they said, well, huh, oxymorphone is twice as potent as oxycodone. That means if I had an 80 milligram oxymorphone tablet, I can get the same effect as I would get from 160 milligrams of oxycontin. So when this drug uh, was difficult to crush, they moved on to generic extended release oxymorphone. That's what they did. So what I'm saying is that you know, people are going to find a way uh, around these. And then there was the Holy Trinity. So the Holy Trinity is the combination of high-dose opioids, a benzodiazepine, and, and carisoprodol. And this was what was commonly done uh, in, in, in pill mills. All right, so um, what do you need? So, like, if you want to leave here, uh, you know, after, after your Vegas trip, you go home and you decide that you want to try this, I'm going to tell you how to do it. So this is what you need. You need a tablet. Now, hopefully it's not a big tablet. That, that looks like a, a um, I don't know, it looks like an acetaminophen tablet, maybe it's a Percocet tablet, but whatever. That's kind of big. See, nobody really wants to, 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 to snort uh, a, like a branded Percocet tablet or oxycodone and acetaminophen because it's too damn big and it's only five milligrams. Maybe it's seven and a half, maybe it's 10. They're more rare, but even so, 10 milligrams in a big tablet the size of Tylenol, nobody wants to snort that, okay? And, and, and the acetaminophen kind of, clog, kind of clogs your nose. So um, you really want a small tablet. All right, uh, the next thing, um, if you're a pharmacist and you go home and do this, you probably have a mortar and pestle or if you cook, um, but you can use a hammer. Use whatever you want. That's Lasix. Is that Lasix? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, nobody's gonna be snorting Lasix, I don't think. I just, I think what I did is I just, I, I picked a tablet that looked about the size of an acetaminophen. Was easy to see. Um, so if you want to snort Lasix when you go home, send me an email. I want to know how that works. <laughs> you know, how fast can you pee if you get the peak up high? So um, the the next one here, uh, that's a, that's a drink of alcohol. You can you can get that downstairs. So if you want to go downstairs before you leave and get some some cocktail straws, that's what you need. Need some cocktail straws, all right? And then you want a nice, nice, fine pile of powder, all right? So you need that. And then you need the straw, and of course you need a nose. And, 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 and not only do you need a nose, you need a nose that, that doesn't have a perforated septum, uh, that doesn't, you know, that, that you're not snorting glue all the time because you don't have a lot of vasculature in your nose. That, that, that's not good. And it's for that reason that I am very much against the whole world getting, being chosen in-home naloxone just because of the cost. Now, I'm not saying um, that, that intranasal naloxone doesn't work. Obviously, it works. There's thousands, there's tens of thousands of people that have been reversed. But it's not going to work as well for everybody, especially if somebody's snorting drugs, right? Because they've got a deviated septum. If they're a cocaine user, they have a deviated septum because they have less vasculature in their nose and it starts to curve. So they're not going to absorb the naloxone quite as readily, which is even a bigger problem when you consider the illicit fentanyl that's on the street, some of which is a thousand times more potent than morphine. Okay? All right. So um, this shows you the, the various graphs on, on the, on the uh, left side, just to give you an idea. Um, if you, um, uh, so this is IR opioids uh, on the left side, and uh, it has plasma concentration on the y-axis, uh, versus time, uh, and then the ER is on the right side. Uh, so this basically shows you that if you crush an IR formulation, the area of the curve is not going to change much, uh, but you're going to get a peak sooner. So what do substance abusers, like if you go home and do this, you want a high peak and you want it quick. That's what you want. All right. On the ER side, you can see what's happening. The area of the curve may be the same right? of those two, of those two graphs, but the issue is that you're going to get not quite twice the peak, but at least 30% higher peak, and you see that that peak comes faster. See, the high peak comes faster than the other thing does. So some computers want a high peak in a short period of time. That's what you want. And you get that with a small pile of powder and a potent drug. All right? So one of the things that these companies uh, want to achieve uh, is they, they want to 
not only blunt that peak and make it similar uh, to a, a regular dose of drug, but they also want that peak to take longer, right? So they want to shift that peak over to maybe three or four hours. Because nobody says, says I, want to, I want to get high now, and so I'm going to spend six hours trying to overcome the ADF. They, they want something now, all right? So, so they're, they're not going to snort this and sit around twiddling their thumbs until they get high, all right? It's just not going to happen. Um, so uh, dollar cost for tampering, I think, is important. Um, and without getting into the real nitty-gritty of this, uh, this was uh, like the 225 respondents throughout the U.S. between 2010 and 11 to see what the costs were. And the bottom line on the bottom here uh, was that if people were admitted to the hospital because they abused drugs without tampering, the average daily visit uh, was 4500 uh, The average cost for the hospital stay was about $4,500. But if people tampered with the drug... Uh, then that, that stay went up to 23000 because it may, it may have involved a respirator and all sorts of other stuff. All right, So it's a lot more expensive to treat patients uh, that are tampering with their drugs, which could help, I think, justify uh, the cost of, of ADS, which is something we forget. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these charts, um, and I want to give fair time to Dr. Chapman. Um, but basically, um, what this does is it shows the year that the various drugs were, um, uh, were approved, um, and whether or not they're currently marketed in the, in the U.S., and you have access to all these slides. This is really for informational purposes because it does get confusing after a while, and there are a lot of products. So it tells you what the approach is, what the year is, um, and whether or not they're currently available. Uh, same thing here. Uh, you can see the drugs, the year approved, et cetera. And then this one, uh, so I, I love this slide, and, and, and the subsequent slides that follow this. Again, it's informational, but I just want to explain to you what it is. So when these companies bring these drugs to market, they, they have to do these studies, and it's the study, they're drug-liking studies. And basically what they do is they take people, you know how we have, you can go downstairs and you can meet like a lot of binge alcoholics, especially if you stay the weekend, like they come on the weekend and they just get totally wasted, and then during the week they, they function. Now there are people that abuse opioids like that, they're binge opioid users. And what they do is they take clonidine during the week or, or, or maybe methadone, they buy spit back for 20 bucks, they go to methadone clinics and they spit it in and pay $20 for that. But there are things that they do to stay average well during the week, low dose. Um, and in the weekend, they, they, they go crazy. These people are very, very tolerant to opioids. These are people that get hired to do likability like studies. So they put them in a room, and they say, knock yourself out, li- literally. So they give, them, they give them all kinds of stuff. They give them solutions. They give them hammers. They give them blenders. They get all kinds of stuff. And they say, you know, try and crush it and try and do this and try and do that. And then a scale of 0 to 100, you tell us where, where your likability is. Tell us where your likability is. So, you know, hundreds, you know, you, you, def, you, know you, you love it. Zero is you don't love it. Now, there are some people that, that are, like, close to placebo. Like, maybe a little, they, get, they, they do a placebo also. And the placebo, you, sometimes if you have 50, 60, 70, I'm like, how can that happen? Because some of these people, they just, they just start to get euphoric when they see a powder, a, a pile of powder or a straw. They just, they just go, start going crazy. So, so, um, so that's how they do these studies. Um, and then, um, so you can see uh, oral crushed, oral chewed, uh, all these different studies. And, and then they also do, would you do it again study? So a likability study, and then would you do it again study? Um, and so um, I have this information for all the different products here. And again, I'm not going to go through all of them, in part because I don't want to seem like I'm favoring one drug over another. It is what it is. The stuff is published. You can look at it. Um, and, and I'll leave it at that. If you have questions after, you know, I'll talk about that. But I, I really don't want to get into, you know, this one was 26.2, this one was 28, this product is better than that product. That, that's not why I'm here. All right, so um, uh, this one here talks about intranasal and intravenous. What you're going to find is that, is that people that abuse uh, these drugs uh, in a fashion where they manipulate them, for everything other than morphine, that are single-entity opiates, single-entity opiates, although there are some exceptions. When I say single-entity, I mean hydrocodone alone, uh, I mean oxycodone alone, uh, oxymorphone, hydromorphone. Um, those things get snorted. Uh, first, they start taking them more frequently. Then they start crushing them because they get a higher peak faster. Then they start putting them in alcohol because it gets absorbed faster. And after that, they go to snorting. That's what usually happens. Then after snorting, then they go to injectable. The exception is morphine. For some reason, morphine is the other way around. They go through all those things I just said, but then what happens is that they start using morphine IV, and then they go to snorting. 
part of it's because morphine isn't absorbed as well uh, intranasally, probably. Um, and so, um, as a boosted term formulation timeline. So this gives you an idea of what's been going on since 2010. Uh, you can see on the right side uh, the ones that FDA approved labeling, because there's a lot of products that have ADF properties, but they are not officially um, FDA approved as an ADF. All right? So, um, so uh, following the reformulation of oxycodone in, in 2010, which eventually came out in 2013, uh, doctor shopping actually decre decreased by 50% because people weren't shopping around for OxyContin anymore. They didn't want it. They were looking for other stuff. All right, and so I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Shopping. Thank you. So welcome to the uh, 2018 um, version of the uh, Jeff and Michael show. Um, Jeff is an incredible scientist from whom I've learned a lot. and. My work is uh, primarily in risk mitigation, policy, and ethics. And we, pub we publish together, we, we present together, and uh, we each learn a lot from each other. Um, and uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the insurance industry um, to get an idea about my feelings on the insurance industry. If you Google my name and the word insurance, you could get 11,000 hits which suggests I've written a few nasty articles about the insurance industry. Any representatives from insurance here? But as I go through this, I'm going to be talking about studies of abuse deterrent formulations and then what happened in terms of a review that was written and why it's really kind of icky. So um, uh, anyway, uh, we need to look at what the data really tell us. So I could sit here and talk about a trillion different studies. I'm just going to talk about it a handful of studies, so it's going to be a few minutes of death by PowerPoint, but just to get an idea of what the studies are telling us in terms of these abuse deterrent formulations uh, as far as um, uh, doing just what they're supposed to do, help deter abuse. Um, you know, Dr. Feud and I agree that no abuse deterrent formulation or tamper resistant formulation is perfect, um, yet there's so much supportive data and no one who doesn't want to pay for them acknowledges that they're supportive data. And this is a problem in American pain medicine. So I did a little PubMed search and I used the uh, terms abuse, deterrent, and opioids and got 221 hits. And you know, the majority of them were opinion pieces and there were only um, a number of empirical investigations. And there's a wide range of quality. And as a journal editor-in-chief, even though I'm not the scientist that Dr. Fuden is, I'm able to say, well, this is good and this is really stinky methodologically and um, want to talk about some of the good quality studies to begin with. Um, so we'll be talking about the more methodologically robust ones. So um, Dr. Cicero um, and colleagues published the initial post-marking epidemiologic study on OxyContin. And again, I'm going to be naming drugs by name. Um, sorry about that. And these are some big numbers here. Survey data on over 20, you know, 2,500 patients with opioid dependence, um, 103 agreed online or telephone interviews uh, to online or telephone interviews to gather qualitative information, as well as some of the uh, many more getting uh, quantifying, uh, quantifiable, uh, um, uh, quantitative uh, information. So what happened when they uh, got rid of the easy-to-abuse OxyContin? The uh, decrease um, in uh, OxyContin as the primary drug of abuse um, went from 35.6% to 12.8%, which is highly statistically significant. Um, the choice of non-abuse deterrent formulations increased from 20% to over 32%, also very significant. And this is the qualitative piece, a quote from a uh, study. Uh, most people that I know don't use OxyContin to get high anymore. They have moved on to heroin because it's easier to use, much cheaper, and easier, uh, easily available. And, and certainly fentanyl out there makes heroin look difficult to obtain and use. So you know the crisis has gotten worse since uh, Ted Cicero and his colleagues did their study. Um, Post-marketing abuse deterrent uh, study of um, abuse deterrent formulation uh, OxyContin done in 2016 more recently. And it 
is a review examining changes in abuse through oral and non-oral routes described by Dr. Feudin, doctor shopping, and fatalities in 10 studies three and a half years after formulation. What they found is that the abuse of Oxycontin decreased 48% in national poison center surveillance systems, 32% in national drug treatment system, and decreased 27% among patients prescribed Oxycontin in claim databases. These are some pretty significant numbers. You know, people say we didn't have a prescription opioid crisis. We had an Oxycontin crisis. And with the reformulation, things got a lot better. Importantly, doctor shopping, which is what diversion is all about, um, that decreased by 50%. And overdose fatalities reported to the manufacturer decreased by 65%. So I want you to keep in mind that these numbers are big numbers. This is not like, oh, we made a change, so we got 3% better. We're talking about some whopping numbers. Um, another study um, on medical cost saving of abuse deterrent formulations. Um, that's always important. We you know, have to do pharmacoeconomic analyses in, in this day and age. Estimated changes in medical costs following the introduction of abuse deterrent formulation OxyContin was examined, and its introduction was associated with relative reductions in rates of diagnosed opioid abuse of 22.7% and 18% among commercially and Medicaid patients, respectively. So people say, well, these are new drugs, and they're not generic, and they're more expensive. But look what happens here. You see some you know, fairly substantial decreases in medical costs. And the authors uh, concluded overall reformulated extended release oxycodone was associated with annual medical savings costs of uh, $430 million in the United States. That's a chunk of money. Um, that's more than Jeff and I have between us. Um, we also have to look at this. <laughs> I've seen your bank book. Um, we also have to look at the societal and economic, uh, societal economic benefits of abuse deterrent formulations. And all this is going to make sense when I get to the second part of my piece here. In addition to this $430 million saved annually, the authors of this study found savings of $96 million relating to criminal justice system costs. This is all with abuse deterrent formulation introduction, $209 million for reduction in premature deaths in terms of lost earnings, $181 million for reductions in lost wages, and employment, $34 million for reductions in excess uh, medically-related absenteeism costs, $15 million in reductions in excess disability costs. The overall societal savings, uh, Kirsten and colleagues determined to be over $1 billion between medical and indirect costs. That is substantial. And we'll have a, a period for question and answer. Um, let's talk mortality. So it should all be about um, look at... Uh, one study uh, by Sessler and colleagues um, looked at pre and post uh, abuse deterrent formulation or reformulation deaths from overdoses over a three year period. Deaths decreased by 82% from the year before reformulation to the third year after. Now, that's pretty high. Um, overdoses with mention of abuse related behavior decreased by 86%. The ratio of ADF oxycontin to all oxycodone deaths decreased from 21% to only 8% from pre-reformulation to eight year, uh, two years uh, post-reformulation. Again, more evidence that these, this is working. Um, another uh, time-released uh, form of oxycodone that's an abuse deterrent is called Extamsa, and Lynn Webster and colleagues um, did look at that, and this is something that Dr. Fusion has also looked at, and there's a very complex design called randomized double uh, blind, double dummy, four phase, uh, four treatment crossover study. So it was a very sophisticated design. And this is very interesting that inhaled extampsa was found to be no more likable than oral extampsa. And Dr. Fuden talked about, you know, want a powder and we want to be able to snort it up. No more likable than oral extampsa. Pretty cool technology. And both oral and inhaled extampsa were found to be less likable than uh, insufflated in, you know, uh, immediate release oxycodone, and there are more nasal-related um, adverse events associated with insufflated extampsa than with the IR oxycodone. And here, you know, adverse events are a good thing because if people who are abusing drugs are having adverse events, then they're not going to be so quick to use that drug as a drug of abuse. They may actually just take it as it's supposed to be taken. Um, another recent extensive abuse potential study focused on abuse versus uh, of, of your chewing versus the intact uh, capsule, 
And again, the comparator in all these studies is always IR oxycodone because the mortar and pestle that Dr. Fuden showed is just such an easy uh, thing to do to turn into baby powder, essentially. And um, the primary endpoint was drug liking at the moment, and chewed an intact extampsa were bioequivalent, which is really interesting. So, you know, someone who is um, suffering from an abuse, uh, opioid uh, use disorder is trying to find that way, as Dr. Fuden pointed out, to get it into the system really quickly. And they're very, very frustrated with extampsa. You know, okay, can't snort it. Mm, that's not going to work. Okay, to just chew it. No, that doesn't work either because they end up being bioequivalents. The drug liking is significantly uh, lower for both chewed and intact extampsa than for crushed IR oxycodone. Scores for feeling high were lower for chewed or intact extampsa than for crushed IR oxycodone. Pre-release study of Embedda, which is extended release oxycodone, was sequestered naltrexone, which uh, Dr. Fuda mentioned, the subject for recreational opioid users. They love participating in these studies because you know, they get paid to come in and get high, which is really a fun thing. No one ever did that to me. Um, I've made that often to me. But, so it compared um, Embedda to OxyIR and placebo. The endpoints of drug liking in the high experience and Embedda's rate for drug liking in high were, again, significantly lower than those for IR oxycodone. Intranasal abuse potential of single entity, once daily ER um, standard release hydrocodone by the name of Hysingla, compared the fine particles. See, Dr. Uh, Fuden talked about how to crush medications and how to take it home and crush it, you know, the mortar and pestle. However, to get fine particles with certain drugs, you need very sophisticated machinery, very expensive uh, machinery. So this compared um, Hysingla fine particles um, to the coarse particles, which are not as desirable, because you want that powder, and that's what we're more likely to see among the average addict, because the average addict does not have access to this expensive machinery. And then again, finally compared it to IR oxycodone, powder, and placebo, subjects were recreational opioid users with history of intranasal abuse, and the insufflation of IR hydrocodone powder, powder resulted in greater at the moment, as well as overall liking, um, two different categories of liking, likelihood of taking again, and uh, subjective drug liking than either fine or coarse particles of the high singla. Again, showing likability differences that were highly significantly, uh, statistically significant. They did the first um, ADF head-to-head -head study in 2014 looking at ER oxymorphone in the tamper-resistant form to abuse deterrence of oxycontin. After reformulation of oxycontin, 21% switched to another ER opioid. We had so many people abusing it. Now, this may have pertained or related to insurance coverage to some extent, but working with patients clinically at the time, no one wanted oxycontin, who was, uh, we'll say, suspect. After the reformulation of ER oxymorphone, 25% switched to another ER opioid without um, abuse deterrent or tamper resistant properties, and those who switched to another ER opioid from um, the uh, new OxyContin that had almost twice the abuse rate. Similar findings among those who switched from oxymorphone to a non-tamper-resistant um, uh, abuse deterrent um, extended release opioid. Again, not surprising. Um, then we have a head-to-head -head study of two abuse deterrent formulations of oxycodone, and this is a big one, OxyContin versus Extampsa, to IR oxycodone, always used as a comparator. It looked at oral pharmacokinetic profiles intact and when crushed when, uh, and taken orally. Extampsa maintained its extended release properties and the abuse deterrent formulation of OxyContin failed to do so. Um, authors suggest that Extampsa may be safer and less attractive to abusers, and this is why a number of insurers have taken OxyContin, which was really, really good at the time, off the market because the abuse deterrent formulations are clearly getting better. You know, so breaking into Extampsa, um, as I understand it, is you know, tantamount to breaking into Fort Knox. Not easy to do. So this is my bad segue slide, and I'm going to um, switch directions a little bit here and talk about the ICER report. And ICER is an acronym that stands for the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. And they wrote this report of about 120 pages, and I may be the only person to have read the whole thing cover to cover. 
And in it, I noticed a few problems. They used old, stale CDC data regarding opioid mortality in the report that Dr. Ziegler and I have uh, disproven and spoke about at the keynote here last year. And in the report, and I'm going to read little sections, quotes, while ADFs deter abuse, they are not abuse-proof. And, you know, I'm big on risk mitigation. If any of you heard my talk at lunch the other day, you know, I spoke about um, take-home naloxone as being just another piece of that risk mitigation package along with, you know, good urine drug testing, uh, use of prescription drug monitoring programs, opioid contracts, etc. And I think that abuse deterrent formulations are a critical part of abuse deterrence. And no one form of abuse deterrent, or I'm sorry, of, of um, risk mitigation is going to make the crisis go away. But if we combine them, then we have a very powerful situation that is going to save a lot of lives. The report is very negative regarding post-marketing studies, but you know, we just looked at some of the post-marketing data on OxyContin, and it's awfully good. Um, they pointed out that swallowing pills whole is the most common form of abuse and is not deterred by abuse-deterrent formulations. And you know, the, from the report, it sounds like no one was dying of overdoses from injecting and snorting. And we know that so many of these deaths were coming from injecting and snorting. A lot of emphasis in the report on diversion. However, you know, I showed some data on lower likability. Does, not, not, does that not translate to decreased risk of diversion? Okay, studies, for example, have been done by um, Rick Dart out in Colorado on the likability of tepentadol. And it's not been found to be terribly likable, and accordingly, diversion is rare, likable among addicts, among many of my patients, they're fine with it. It's critical of the CDC guideline, and this is a real puzzle to me. They state that none of the 12 recommendations meets a high standard of evidence. Well, we all know that. But then it notes that the guideline doesn't even mention abuse deterrent formulations for treating chronic pain. So, again, these people are really clutching at straws. Um, you know, there is a lot of abuse deterrent formulation OxyContin because that was the first abuse deterrent formulation. And they wrote, we judge the comparative clinical effectiveness of OxyContin to be C plus for the risk of abuse. C plus doesn't sound great, but we'll have to look at these studies again as well as the bias. And I think that a C plus beats the um, grade given to uh, you know uh, pre-reformulation OxyContin and immediate released um, opioid analgesics without any abuse deterrent formulations because those get like a D minus E plus or something along those lines. Another great quote here: the evidence on the impact of OxyContin reformulation shows a decrease in OxyContin specific abuse, but also a shift in some cases towards other routes of administration, other prescription opioids, and heroin. Well, could that be because non-abuse deterrent formulations of opioids and heroin and now fentanyl and its analogs are available? That was my dumb moment there, reading this report. Out-of-pocket costs due to higher costs of the therapies um, could inhibit access to opioids for patients in need. And when I get to my grand finale, you'll see how ridiculous that statement is. Um, and this would not be the case if insurers were compelled to pay for them. So there are higher out-of-pocket costs, but most of these um, opioid manufacturers have um, uh, programs set up where you can get them cheaper, at least for a year. Um, you know, so they're trying to help in their own way. Legislation and policy mandating or encouraging use of abuse deterrent formulations often includes other components targeted at reducing opioid abuse and misuse. However, no evidence seems to have been generated to date on the effects of these multi-component strategies. Well, if there's no evidence, then instead of writing really stinky, biased reviews, why don't they just use their intellectual firepower, which they claim to have, and start doing some research to prove these things? You know, why not be part of the solution? Why compound the problem? Well, maybe they're getting paid. The aim of our analysis was to estimate and compare the costs and benefits of using extended release um, ADF opioids uh, or non-ADF opioids for chronic pain. And what they found is the average drug price for an abuse deterrent formulation is roughly twice or almost exactly twice that of the old non-abuse deterrent formulation. And what comes to my mind and I discussed this in my talk at lunch on Tuesday, you know, 
and the benefit of saving even a single life? How do you put a price on a single life? And the ICER people were simply saying, you know, you know, lots and lots of lives will be saved, but it's not quite worth the cost. Am I the only one who finds that ridiculous? Is, is you know, human life not sacred? Um, apparently not for the ICER people. Then they use modeling. Oh, this is another favorite one. We chose a five-year time horizon because we assumed that few patients would be prescribed opioids continuously for longer than five years. Really? I, you know, in, in my practice, I was seeing people who were on opioids for a quarter of a century. But this may show that these people don't have the same practice that I had and the same practice that Jeff had, um, or was it the fact that most of them didn't practice at all and were completely cut off from the realities of clinical practice, yet they're giving a critical review. Bottom line, economic modeling analysis doesn't necessarily capture the real world of abuse and diversion. The authors note that cost neutrality could be achieved if ADF opioids were discounted by 41% from the current market basket price. Again, putting the, the price on saving lives. And you know, my question is, does the study have anything to do with safety, societal good, or is it just about insurance company cost containment and profitability? While ADFs may deter abuse, they are not abuse-proof. And this is why they're called abuse-deterrent formulations, not abuse-proof uh, formulations, as Jeff pointed out. Again, on the CDC guideline, none of the 12 recommendations of the CDC guideline meets a high standard of evidence, but they are judged to reduce harm and likely improve chronic pain control in the United States. And you know, you've all heard you know, uh, the, uh, people talking and, and writing on the evidence basis, or lack thereof, of the 12 recommendations of the CDC. And it's interesting that we as a society have largely accepted these imperfect guidelines, but you know, they're suggesting we don't accept the abuse deterrent formulations because you know, there's not enough uh, good data other than the data that I put up there on, on, on the screen. The guidelines currently do not, uh, do not currently mention ADS for treating patients with pain. Uh, nor lots of other things. They're not evidence-based, they're agenda-driven, and this is the biggest problem we have in American pain medicine. Um, patient and population-level outcomes studies that evaluate real-world evidence of, of abuse and misuse, the authors note that none of the studies included addiction as an outcome. And maybe the possibility is that people are not getting addicted to abuse-deterrent formulations. And I practiced for five years after the first ADF was released, and I wasn't seeing any of my patients becoming addicted. Were they developing a degree of physical dependence? Sure. Is that inherent in opioid therapy generally? Yeah. But where are these people? Regarding ADF OxyContin, the rate of abuse of other prescription opioids um, and heroin abuse may have increased during the same period. Well, of course. You know, the whole idea of reformulation of opioids is not to cure all the ills of society. They just want to make prescription opioids safer for people who require opioid analgesia. And they're saying, oh, well, it's causing, you know, more heroin abuse. That's probably a good thing because it separates the wheat from the chaff. It separates the patients with chronic pain from those with opioid use disorders. And as I see it, it's supportive of ADF OxyContin. Furthermore, findings from direct interviews with recreational users show that reformulated OxyContin may have limited impact on changing overall abuse patterns. And, you know, was this the goal of Purdue Pharma in doing this, and neither of us on Purdue's payrolls, or were they simply trying to create an effective analgesic with lower abuse potential? Throughout the document, ICER ridiculously emphasizes this, and the report does the same thing regarding doctor shopping and drug diversion. You know, finally, we currently don't have any real-world evidence for the other ADFs as the, their entry into the U.S. market is very recent. So they're critical of a lack of real-world evidence of drugs that are too new to study in terms of the real-world evidence. It's like, we're going to write a report panning this whole class because all these new drugs, we don't have the evidence. Well, they were released you know, a year or two before the ISA report came out, yet they're criticizing this. Um, regarding OxyContin reformulated, our judgment is that the evidence can only demonstrate a comparable, better net health benefit of C plus, 
And again, as I said earlier, C plus is a respectable passing grade where I come from. Um, the cost-benefit model, all patients enter the model um, as therapeutic users defined as those chronic pain patients who use prescription opioids for only pain alleviating purposes and not for abuse. And I thought we were trying to limit access among abusers, not among patients who are legitimately suffering from chronic pain. And the risk of mortality from opioid overdose was assumed to be the same for patients with abuse in both the ADF and non-ADF cohorts. And I showed you a bunch of data. When I started speaking, I didn't see that. Maybe they read different reports than I read. Um, we'll kind of move on here um, a little bit. Um, prescribing physicians should help patients understand that ADFs are not less addictive than non-ADFs. This is why ADF stands for abuse deterrent formulation, not addiction deterrent formulation. Um, is there not a strong relationship between abuse and addiction? Again, ADFs are not a panacea, but they help. So here's my favorite part of this. You look at the report, and when Jeff and I write a paper, we give our conflicts of interest. When we give a talk like this at a conference, we talk about our conflicts of interest. He works for industry. I do a little bit of work for industry. Did the ISO report point out that they get funded by all of these insurance companies? No. So ethically, this is one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen in my life. I think this report will serve to kill people if it's not killed people already because insurers say, look at the ISO report. We're not going to give abuse deterrent formulations. You can just have loads of oxy-IR that you can grind up and snort and die on. So Lynn Webster and I wrote a paper you know, on insurance and ADFs back in 2015, and they didn't want to pay for ADFs back then. And we posited that insurers would rather see high, uh, chronic pain patients die of overdoses rather than cover the cost of treating them as their pain and comorbidities are expensive to treat. It hasn't gotten any better. And in fact, insurance companies are getting more brazen. And the ISA report, as flawed as it is, simply reinforces this type of really pathetic thinking. So I'm going to finish just with a quote from the McCarthy hearings. And to the people at ISA and to the insurance industry as it applies to ADFs, I ask, have you no sense of decency? I believe not. So pretest question, um, examples of opioids that have been formulated to deter opioids include all of the following, except uh, I think people were very good in understanding that it is just methadone. Um, and again, uh, following the reformulation of oxycodone CR in 2010, doctor shopping decreased by 50%. Thank you. Okay. We have some time um, for questions and answers, thoughts, and um, uh, yes? In Louisiana, one of my colleagues used the first one from the legislature. It got a law passed a couple weeks ago that made it illegal for insurance companies to deny safer opioids in favor of less expensive opioids. I used it, got that argument successfully with uh, using morphine uh, bugle, uh, versus them wanting me to try it. I suspect that kind of law would work as well. Um, you know, this is called anti-step therapy legislation, and the problem with that is that, you know, these are, are good laws, but insurance is countering by saying, okay, we will cover abuse deterrent to pentadol, or whatever it may be, whatever the drug may be, but then says, we're going to create a new class for it. So this is the class where your co-pay is only 80%. But they're paying, you said they're paying from Louisiana? Yeah. That's why it's a Dixieland town there in New Orleans. The Saints came marching in. That's the way it should be. I mean, they, it's good that they're paying for them. Yes? Good for them. And I'm wondering, is this unique or? No, no, this is happening um, nationally with, I think it's Aetna. Um, 
uh, see the Aetner Cigna nationally has taken um, Oxycontin off in favor of Extampsa because of the studies I showed um, that demonstrate that it's harder to break into um, Extampsa than it is to break into reformulated Oxycontin. The I think it is progressing, um, and um, you know, when uh, Dr. Webster and I wrote our article in 2015, um, we thought you know they're you know they're, they're never going to pay, but some of the payers are coming around. So that that is interesting that Tennessee's Blue Cross Blue Shield is doing this, and maybe some of the others will follow suit. And, and there are other good reasons for for that too. So for example, um, if the cost is similar, let's, let's say everything's equal in terms of cost. Um, the extensa formulation, if you ever open up that capsule, it's kind of like sand, right? So it remains extended release if you put it in applesauce. There are some people that misuse their medications not on purpose, like an elderly person might be used to opening up a capsule or crushing it because they can't swallow it. So extensa is a unique, a unique formulation in that no matter what you do to it, it remains extended release. I think you see the other one was Morphobond. Morphobond was the other one. So Morphobond was compared against MS Contin. And again, I don't know how the price of Morphobond compares to um, some, some of the others. But what I do know is that um, the, if you do crush it, um, the, the, uh, the peak is significantly blunted. So you, you don't get uh, too much more than you would get with, a, uh, with an IR. It's not like you're getting an ER formulation all at once. So not only is it blunted, the time to which you reach that peak uh, is skewed over to about two and a half, three hours. So from a safety perspective, uh, that, that's, this is probably a wise choice. But I will tell you this, because I've been in Tennessee and I've been in other states lecturing, and some, the, although this is great, what, what you just said, um, there, there are other things that insurance companies that are doing that are just so wrong, it, it just, I, I can't sleep at night. So here's one example. I was presented with a letter from a Blue Cross Blue Shield um, uh, uh, Medicaid in Kentucky, and the, the request was for extended-release tramadol. Now, um, if I was a pharmacist on that P&T committee, I might say, you know, I'm not paying for this. I'll pay for IR tramadol, right, because the, the risk of abusing that is, is not that high. But instead, what this letter said is, um, in order to receive extended-release tramadol, you first must um, uh, you must uh, fail or not tolerate two of three of the following, methadone, MS Contin, or fentanyl. I mean, mortified. Uh, I saw another, um, I saw another uh, insurance claim where a, a person, uh, it was in November, the person had just changed insurance companies uh, because it was November, they signed for a new insurance company, uh, and the person was stable for a long time on Butrans patch. And so Medicaid comes along, uh, again, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and they said, I'm sorry, we're not paying for Butrans. You have to first fill on fentanyl. Like, what are these people thinking? What has to happen is insurance companies need to be held accountable. They need to be held accountable because they are, they are a huge, huge cause of the problem, and nobody holds them accountable. And if you get bumped from an airline on the way home, you know, it's the same thing. Nobody holds them accountable. They do whatever they want, right? I mean, so I, I, it's, it's a problem in this country um, that insurance companies are able to get away with this and people are suffering and dying. They don't want to pay for physical therapy visits beyond, I don't know, you know whatever the limit is, 6, 10, or 12. They don't want to pay for um, uh, non-prescription uh, modalities, um, extended uh, exercise, diet. Uh, uh, um, all those things are important. Right? Um, counseling is important. All those things are important. And I think that uh, Beth Dornell gave an excellent presentation about, you know, you can give all the drugs in the world, but if you don't fix the other side of the coin, it's not going to do any good. And the insurance companies are looking at the here and now. And, and the other thing is, I think you, you showed, uh, Michael, you showed a five-year five thing on here. And, and the truth is, there are very few people that stay with the same insurance company for more than five years. Average is three. Three years? Okay. So they don't care. They only care how cheap they can treat a patient today. They don't really care what the long-term outcome is. And, and, and if, we, if, we, if we look over here, um, just bring this slide back up again, 
you know, United Healthcare, you know, won't give that, you know, eighth or ninth or tenth uh, session of physical therapy, but their CEO made $66.1 million. And this is absurd. You know, I, I'm not, you know, Che Guevara over here, but, you know, people making this kind of money, um, you know, in order to, you know, and, and as a result, you know, people are suffering with chronic pain and, and, and it's just, it's just bad. Um, Some, sometimes, so, yes. sometimes I have. Yeah. Sometimes no. It really, de it really depends. Yeah, yeah. It, it really depends. And I think, I think that um, you know the point that you brought up. And I don't, you know, I'm not really interested so much in talking about the brand, but you gave an example of an oxycodone extended release abuse deterrent and an abuse deterrent morphine extended release. I think that's really important because some states and some insurance companies are saying you have to have one ADF. That's not acceptable. For, for a couple of reasons. One reason is that oxycodone in particular um, is metabolized by two different cytochrome enzymes, right? So there's a higher risk of drug interactions, number one. And number two, you could have an outlier that is either a rapid, an ultra-rapid or poor metabolizer of either one of those enzymes, which could affect how a person would respond to oxycodone. Morphine, on the other hand, does not go through the cytochrome system. And, and, and therefore, there are some patients that morphine is a better choice for. There are also patients that morphine is a poorer choice for because if you have poor kidney function, your elderly patient just by, by like my kidney function I'm sure is going down, all right, you get to a certain age, it starts to go down and with morphine, although it doesn't go through the cytochrome system, so it's safer from that perspective, um, the downfall is that you accumulate um, the six and three glucuronide metabolites and the six glucuronide metabolite uh, has analgesia and respiratory depression, that sort of thing. So it is, it is important to have choices. And the example you gave was oxycodone and morphine, and people don't realize that. They just think an opiate is an opiate. And it, it, I think most people, if you ask them if they're prescribing a drug, why did you select this drug over that drug? They won't be able to tell you why. It's just like, you know, I, I, I guess I'll try my morphine. That didn't work, I'll, I'll try oxycodone. There are reasons to have those two, and those two drugs in particular. I think it, that's very wise on the part of, I don't know whether they made the decision for the right reasons, but they made the right decision. Yes, you had a question, sir. So upon is a little bit, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I'm going to try because I'm not sure I, I got the question right. But with regard to Opana, that's, that's a unique example <clears throat> because, first of all, it was a very small population that was abusing the Opana. And the way that they were abusing it is they were crushing it up, they were dissolving it, and they were injecting it. So the first question in my mind is, um, should the rest of the country be punished because one county was doing this. That's the question number one. Question number two uh, is what really happened by injecting the Opana. People were not dying from an opioid overdose from injecting Opana. They were dying because the, the formulation caused microangiopathies and people's hearts were stopping, right? So um, th that is a very, very unique situation. And something that I think is equally important is that once Opana was yanked off the, 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 the market, what did any of the governing agencies do to help clinicians decide what they're going to do for the legitimate patients that were taking it the way they were supposed to? That's an important question because you, you need to ask, why was the patient on Opana to begin with? Why were they on oxymorphone to begin with? Was it because they couldn't tolerate oxycodone? Is it because they were an ultra-rapid uh, 3 4 metabolism, and poor 2D6, and they have poor kidney function, couldn't tolerate morphine. Is that why they were on oxymorphone? If it is, when we yank this off, what are the choices? You know, if the insurance company is not going to pay for a generic oxymorphone extended release anymore, uh, just because that's what they decided, then what are you going to do? Right? Are you going to give them a hydromorphone? I, I actually wrote an article on this. You need, you need to ask certain questions. If you're going to yank a drug off the market and there's X thousands of people on it, Please help the providers understand what the next step should be, and, and the government did not do that. I think a really good parallel here is, you know, you know CMS saying, um, what, is it 90 or 100 milligrams 
for Medicare and Medicaid patients come the first of the year. Oh, I'm not and yet. yet no one from uh, CMS is talking about, okay, now what are we going to do? I mean, and, and we're all sitting out here in the trenches saying, what the hell are we going to do? Well, I'm telling you, you know what I think needs to be done? Here's what needs to be done. What needs to be done is we need to have medical consensus guidelines written. We've got 50 states and 60 different um, margin cutoffs. Obviously, they can't all be right. So I think we have to have a medical panel of people put together consensus guidelines that maybe would be sponsored by pharma, and of course the world's going to say it's biased, right? So here's what they need to do. I spoke to Dr. Rafa about this. You put together a panel, you do it in an official way as doing consensus guidelines, you have two panels going at the same time. You have people, unlike me, that have no ties to pharma at all, uh, but are experts in the field of pharmacotherapy, opioid pharmacotherapy, and you have another panel of people that may or may not have ties to pharma, and they both do the guidelines at the same time. And then when it's done, you match them to see whether there's any bias, and now you've got your guidelines. And none of us ever get paid to do consensus guidelines, so there's no bias there. Right? Somebody needs to do something. Uh, we need to have a new, a new uh, three-step analgesic ladder. It needs to be more than three steps. Right? Um, we need to have consensus on morphine equivalents because the CDC sure got it wrong. Right? Um, there are certain drugs that should never have a morphine equivalent. Methadone, buprenorphine, depentadol, right? There are, everybody's complaining about the problems, but nobody's doing anything about it. And I think that the people left, you know, really high and dry, you know, other than the patients are, you know, frontline clinicians and, you know, who are really trying hard, people like you, you know, the heroes of pain medicine who are trying to do the right thing and the effective thing, but you are told what you can't do, but you're not told what you can do. So it becomes a nasty kind of catch-22 situation, and, and, and this is why I, you know, a great cause of uh, burnout among physicians who treat, and, and all providers who treat chronic pain. So it's rough. It's rough. Any more questions? Okay, thank you very much. Enjoy the